Turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. We're going to be finishing up this amazing chapter today. And uh, the whole emphasis that we've had from Paul thus far has been, in chapter 5 especially, this what I'm calling invincible hope. We have this hope that cannot be shaken. It cannot be lost. It is invincible, truly. And so we rejoice. We can rejoice in this reality, the hope of what is to come, verse 2, the, the hope of, of uh, the confidence such that we can rejoice even in our sufferings, verse 3, and our reconciliation with God. We have God now, verse 11. We are reconciled through Jesus Christ. We have invincible hope, and what Paul wants to do as we finish chapter 5 is just nail it home, just bring it home all the more. And he takes us back to the very beginning where things went so wrong in Adam. And so we're going to look today at what I'm, I've titled Original Sin and Abounding Grace. Original Sin and Abounding Grace. Romans 5, 12 through 21. Yes, we are going to cover that many verses. I know it seems amazing, but uh, they're all together. And I just didn't want to separate them up. So let's get in here together and, uh, and journey through this together. We'll see what happens to death near the end of the sermon. I like my sledgehammer, by the way. That's, that's a fun tool right there. I think when young men graduate, right, high school, you graduate from high school, I think you should just automatically get a sledgehammer, right? I mean, that is just a tough instrument of destruction and so we're going to put it to work here at the end of the sermon i brought two of these just so you know original sin let's dig in here verse 12 i'm titling these first few verses the reign of death in adam the reign of death in adam this is what paul says therefore just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Because all sinned. And we understand how things went horribly wrong in the beginning. And so we, we understand this. There's a few things that just jump out that have to be mentioned right away in this, in, in this context. For those who would suggest, our, our, our liberal scholars in the world, who say that Adam and Eve are just uh, kind of a, a fairy tale as it were. They weren't actually the first human beings. Now, you see what we're doing here? We're trying to make sense of what is touted as fact in our day. Scientific fact. The scientific fact of evolution. It's not a fact. It's a fairy tale. That's what it is. I'm taking God's word for it. He in the beginning made all that was in six literal 24-hour days. And at the end of that work, day six, he began to, um, cre he created Adam and Eve. He, he breathed life into Adam. He formed him from the dust and, and then breathed life into him. And then he placed him in the garden. And then after the parade of animals was finished and no helper was found suitable for him, no corresponding helper, then he put Adam to sleep and he took a rib and he fashioned woman from the rib that he had taken from Adam. Womb, man. Womb, man. Woman. And that is the first 
human beings. Made in the image of God, Adam and Eve are not simply a fairy tale. They are truly historical, the first human beings. Don't listen to this garbage science that's trying to say you can be a Christian and a fully embracing evolutionist at the same time. You can't. Not if you're true to the Word of God. So, we don't mince words when it comes to taking God's Word. We're, we're sitting there with it. The problem with this passage is if you make Adam a fairy tale, the, you have the, the problem of Jesus becoming a fairy tale as well. Jesus and Adam are paired together. In Paul's mind, they are real men who have huge consequences and affect our lives today. You can't have one and uh, you can't get rid of one and have the other. They come together as a pair in Paul's mind and they were real. And they are. Now, original sin, it's also interesting when we refer to this, this passage with the title Original Sin. We've got to clarify in our minds, just so you don't get home and be like, oh, but wait, what about, what about Lucifer? Right? I see what you're thinking. Yeah, I'm with you. So, the very first sin was not Adam and Eve. It was Lucifer, wasn't it? This beautiful angel that God made with great power and beauty. And it was early in the creative work. We don't know exactly when it took place, but certainly all things were made by the Son, that is Christ, in six days. That would also include angels. All things, whether in heaven or on earth. And so somewhere along the way, early on, it says in 1 John that Lucifer was a, a betrayer, um, was, was corrupt from the beginning. Now, he was not made evil. God made him good. And he said, all that he has made is good. But some way or another, this, this inclination of stealing the glory of God crept into Lucifer's heart, and he launched a, a rebellion, as it were, against the God of all glory. How foolish that was. And he and a third of the angels were swept from heaven and thrown down to the earth. That is why in the garden in Genesis 3, you have a serpent, Lucifer, the tempter of humans. Now, when it says sin entered the world, it means the world of humanity. It, it, it entered the world of those who carry the image of God. That is how sin entered the world and, uh, and the garden. The other thing that I've just got to point out here is Eve is not mentioned in this whole passage. No mention of Eve, who we know was the first to take and eat and then give to her husband who was with her. What do we learn from this? Well, we're complementarians at this church. We believe that the man has been assigned a role in the marriage, and that role is a good thing. It's a, it's a gift of God assigned for him to function in. That role is to be the, the spiritual head of his home. And the wife is called to come in and tuck under that headship, that, that spiritual leadership. And so, look at this. Think, think with me. In Genesis 1 and 2, before the fall, we have authority and submission structures on display, both in the Trinity, eternally, and in those who carry his image in the marriage that God institutes and calls them into. Eve is brought into that marriage relationship as a helper, not as a head, but as a helper. And so we understand from Scripture, before sin enters the world, that men and women are equal in value, 
but in the context of marriage, assign differing roles by God. This is for his glory. One of the reasons Eve is not mentioned in here as the one who is in view, who sinned first, is because Adam is the head of that home, that marriage. He bears the responsibility for the sin of his wife. He carries it. And, by the way, not without his own participation as well. He's right there. And so as soon as she bites, she hands the, the fruit to Adam and he partakes as well. Both of them disobeying. But Adam called to account specifically. When God went into the garden, who did he ask for? He called for Adam. Friends, this is an important marker for us. Before the fall, before sin, God has orchestrated a, a design for marriage. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it because we've already covered these things. But I will just say this. Our world is doing everything possible to subvert that design that God blessed and called good. Sin distorts it and makes the man uh, a dominant uh, dictator instead of a lead servant, one who serves and pours himself out like Christ and takes sin in the woman and makes her desire for the man and, and she wants to usurp and take his role and his authority and, right, happy wife, happy life, she runs the show, she wears the pants, that whole thing. That is a subversion of God's good design. And we collectively here reject that sinful inclination and embrace God's good gift. Part of what the gospel accomplishes is redeemed views of marriage, biblical roles within marriage. All right, now I'm going to keep running. We've got that? We're clear on that? Okay. Let's keep moving. This is in Genesis 2, verses 16 and 17. Listen to the very clear command that was given to Adam. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. This is a loving warning. He has given lavish blessings. All of these trees are yours. But do not eat of this tree. Do not eat of this tree. A command. A test of obedience. The day that Adam and Eve partook together, instant spiritual death occurred. They died spiritually instantly, just as was told. And as God pronounced the curse, to the dust you will return. Physical death began as well. And eventually, Adam and Eve died physically. Their eyes were opened. They were ashamed. They felt the guilt. They ran, they ran to hide from one another with the fig leaves, sowing these fig leaves, uh, which was a terrible choice of leaf, uh, of leaf to, to, uh, to cover with. Uh, very itchy. Uh, don't recommend it. God goes into the garden and he says, where are you? Not wondering where they actually were, but calling them out, revealing this brokenness. We used to walk together. There was no fear. We were, we were united as one. Now you hide from me. Notice this. This is what you've chosen. Spiritual death instantly. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death 
spread to all men because all sinned. Now, these words are fascinating. Because all sin or sinned. These are in the aorist tense. All three of these words. Or you could say, for all have sinned. So we understand then, in, in, in some amazing way, collectively, as humanity, we together in Adam have all committed transgression. We have, we sinned in Adam. The sin of Adam is set on display in the sons of Adam. I mean, you don't have to go very far, right? Genesis 4. Look at what takes place. These two boys, born after the sin is committed, instantly you have depravity on display. They are born spiritually lifeless. They have no desire for God. They have uh, nothing but death in them, and that is what they choose when they sin, and they begin to die just as all begin to die. Upon birth, we are headed toward the grave. We're all in different stages of death. Cain rises up and kills Abel. Imagine that day for Adam and Eve. I, I just still, oh, what a heartbreaking experience. As those who witnessed sinless intimacy with God, and then the contrast of all of the hell that unfolded as a result of our sin in Adam. Our fallenness is real. Our sin nature is not hard to notice. I've said this before. We don't teach kids to sin. <laughs> it's who we are. It's instinctual. We have to teach kids to obey. We have to call them to obedience. We have to train them and, 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 and in discipline point them to the, the call of the Lord and the gospel which saves sinners like us. We are totally depraved. Not utterly depraved. We're not as bad as we might be without the restraining grace of God that prevents this world from going completely off its rocker. Although, I wonder if he's lifting the brakes a little bit more recently. One of the ways he restrains the world is through his church. You realize that? Our presence in the public square is one of the ways God applies the brakes on sin in the culture. So don't retreat from the public square, Christian. Shine. We're not trying to build the kingdom right here. We're trying to advance the kingdom of God, and we do that through the gospel, but we, we are to shine in the place that we are, we are to live. And part of the way we do that is to be vocal about the, the horrific nature of sin and how serious it is. We are fallen. We are sinners. We sin because we're sinners. We are not sinners because we, we sin. We are born as those who are described in Ephesians as children of wrath. That is our destiny. And that is a result of this sin that we share in Adam. I just have to point this out. I, I, I was struck by this as I studied Nearly all the commentaries I read and the sermons that I listened to as I prepared and it's kind of saturated in this text, nobody said this. And I, it just, I, I feel like it's so important for us to have this in view. Death is not an entity in itself. It doesn't just show up as a thing. It is a consequence. 
that comes from the justice of a holy God. The reason death is in the world is because God is holy and just, and He brings the sentence down. The gavel pounds. Condemned, guilty, unrighteous, unholy. Death is the penalty. Now, there's all kinds of chaos that's happening in this world. Our world is a, is a total mess, and it has been going all the way back. I mean, just think how quickly we move from the garden to the flood. In Genesis, you're talking just a matter of chapters. It doesn't take long for a massive population rise and depravity on a scale so extreme that God floods the entire earth and kills billions of people and spares only eight. And the eight were sinners as well. Saved only through the wood. Death is a consequence of divine justice. No one dies on their own. It's not, you don't just die on your own. God ordains the number of breaths you will draw in this life. It is the doing of God. I create life and I end life. That is His work. Spiritual death is our reality. We are born lifeless, spiritually dead. We have no inclination to God, no ability nor desire to move His way. There are no seekers, as we've said. There's, there's no seekers out there. There is the work of God who draws and pulls people to Himself, absolutely. And many of us experience seasons of life like that. But left to ourselves, none of us seek God, Romans 3 makes clear. Physical death is that enemy that none of us can overcome. Not the richest man in the world can figure out a way to escape the headstone. More terrifying by a long shot than physical death is the eternal death that waits. It is appointed for man to die once and then face judgment, says in Hebrews. God has appointed that we live this life and that we die. And upon our death, we answer for every careless word we spoke, for every sin we committed. We answer to a holy and just God. And for those who are outside of Christ, but in Adam still, hell is what is received forever. It is the eternal death. It is a, a living, conscious torment under the righteous wrath of God forever. It is fearsome, far more than anything we could face in this life. As bad as this life might be in a sinful and dark world. Hmm. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Sin, past tense, all aorist tense. We, we sinned in Adam, for sin was indeed in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. We're going to come back to that. Don't worry. Yet, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. I love that. I love that, I love that Adam is a type. <laughs> Isn't that great, the order there? Adam is a, he's the first human being and he's the, the shadow, the type 
the pointer of the one who was to come, the plan from the beginning. Let's break this in a little bit here. Sin was indeed in the world before the law was given. One of the things we know about the purpose of the law, we've studied this already in Romans, is that the law reveals sin. The law was never intended to save. It cannot save. None of us can fulfill the law. The law is a hammer that shows our total desperation as sinners for the mercy and grace of God through His appointed Messiah. What does he mean when it says sin is not counted where there is no law? Well, it doesn't mean that sin doesn't matter. If you haven't read the Bible, you can't be a sinner. That's not what he's saying. We know from earlier verses, for instance, verse 12a, for all have sinned who have sinned, uh, uh, this is in chapter 2, by the way, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish, be destroyed. That's eternally so without the law. For when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves. Even though they don't have the law, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness. So you ask the question, from Adam to Moses, were there people who were sinners? The answer is every single one. You have the flood, you have the Tower of Babel, all of that takes place. And that punishment, that wrath, was righteous of God. None of them had the Word of God, the law. It was before Sinai. So their sin was marked in a different way, and it only was clarified when the law came. It was more revealed. It was, it was the transgression of, of trespass, not just the breaking of the character of God. Adam sinned against the revealed command of God. Do not eat of that tree. And that's exactly what he did. Hmm. As the law came in, the trespass increased, didn't it? Now we know the commands of God. Thou shalt not. And we do. And just a word here. To commit willfully, knowingly, to plan a sin, it's no small thing. It's a big deal. It's scary. We need to be aware of this. The Word of God is helpful for us in one way, especially in the sense that it, it shows us what God's will for our lives is. When we live our lives in opposition to His revealed will, we transgress Him willfully, purposely, intentionally. Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. The, the word type or typos means image or pattern or foreshadow. This is a pointer to the second Adam, as sometimes Jesus is referred to. So you have Adam, and then you have the second Adam. And basically, these following verses now are going to compare and contrast the first Adam and the second Adam, Jesus Christ. So let's see how this goes. Just want to sum this whole first section up by considering the reign of death. Just, just pause with me for a minute and think. You know, when we were in South Carolina, we went to our, our, our family's grave area where all of our 
our ancestors, the, at least the important ones, right, were, were buried. And Andrew Pickens, you know, he, he's really renowned down there. And I was just struck with how unimpressive the graves were, honestly. There was a brick wall. I'm sure at one point it looked great. The brick wall that surrounded the gravestones to kind of keep people away from these, these special graves, it was all starting to break down and crumble. These men and women lived and died long ago. And if it wasn't for the internet, who would remember at this point? The memory just passes. Friends, those gravestones, that's our future. That's our future. Try to escape that. You can't cryogenically escape what is coming. It's inevitable. The reign of death is real. And our world is reeling from it. Just this past week, look across the news. You cannot watch the news or read the newspaper or hear the news broadcasts and not notice it. It's everywhere. It's in our county. It's in our families. It's in our church. The reign of death is real. In all of its horrific fallout, not just physical death, but sin and evil and darkness. The reign of death. Our great enemy in this life. Inescapably so. Chris works for a cemetery and I was telling him he got a really interesting job. You know, he got a call and he had to go pick up a, a dead guy and bring it to the the, the cemetery there. And, and, you know, when you're around death a lot, it has a way of clarifying life. It's one of the reasons I like doing funerals, honestly. It sharpens reality. When you understand and you see that person was alive last week and now they're gone. That, they're, they're here, but they're not here. How do we deal with this? What do we do? with death. The gospel rings out at funerals. Just so we're clear, if you pass away and you want me to do your funeral, I'm preaching the gospel. Okay? That's what we do here. We preach the gospel. The good news. There is something more than death to face. Well, let's get to it. The reign of life in Christ, the reign of life in Christ. Verse 15, the free gift is not, let me start with a really important word, but, but the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through the one man's trespass, much more, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Oh, I love this. Paul begins to use these words and they're purposeful and meaningful. Look at how he describes the gospel here. The free gift. What does that echo out? As we've journeyed through Romans, think of that. He says, this is the gospel. It's the free gift. 
It means you, you don't have to work for it. You don't have to try to be good enough. You don't have to labor to earn it. It's free. It's free. And then he adds this. The grace of God that comes to us through Jesus Christ. What does that mean? It means we don't deserve it. Not only are we not trying to earn this gift, it's a gift, but we can't. It is truly given as something we don't deserve. It excludes works. You can't earn this. You don't deserve this, but here it is in Jesus Christ. Much more. This is such an awesome word. I, I, love, I love how this, this builds out. Here, here's one thing to remember. When you think of redemptive history, we are not simply returning to Eden or recovering what was just lost there. Far more than that. The glory that awaits us, friends, is going to make Eden pale in comparison. It is not a return to Eden. It's much more than that. Hmm. I love how someone said it. I, I, I would quote them, but I don't remember who said it. It just stuck in my mind. We gain far more in Jesus Christ than we ever lost in Adam. Far more in Jesus Christ. And now he's going to show us what that means, what that looks like. What we've lost in Adam is long past when we are found in Christ. So, let's move through these verses. They just come in rapid succession, and we're just going to take them one at a time. The free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, that's Adam, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses, there's a contrast. Look at the, the contrast there. The free gift of the gospel that Christ accomplished dealt with far more than just one sin. It followed many trespasses and it brought a declaration of righteousness. So look at these two together then. In Adam, you have one trespass. One act of disobedience would plunge the world into darkness and calamity and destruction. That is how serious sin is. Don't ever make light of sin in your life. One sin. And we collectively so in that. If it wasn't Adam, it would have been me. Brought condemnation for all. But through Jesus Christ, even after many trespasses, with all the sin of all who believe in view, the purchase price was accomplished and the result is justified. Righteous. You are righteous in Jesus Christ. He goes on, verse 17. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more, there's the words, again, see, see the build-out. It's much more. Those who receive the abundance of grace, there's an amazing word to note. You might underline that phrase, the abundance of grace. It's not just enough, it's overflowingly enough. Those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness 
reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. How do we reign in this life? How do we overcome the reign of death inside of us and what we stare down as we think about our future? Jesus is the answer. It is in Him that we reign in life. The kind of life that death can't even touch. Right? It is not death to die. He is the victor over death. Wow. Death reigned in Adam, but life reigns in Jesus Christ and all those who are found in Christ. He goes on. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. What an amazing thing to consider. I mean, just you just watch Jesus walk his life out in perfect obedience and then bring all of that obedience to the cross and complete his work in full by laying down his innocent life as an atoning substitute sacrifice for me and all of my sin. That I would be declared righteous because of what he did. Hmm. In Adam, we have sin and condemnation. And just be reminded, this is how we're born. <laughs> this is what we're born into. I, mean, I know we're cute. Uh, the little babies are cute, right? But every single child conceived is a child conceived with the shadow of death. Every single child conceived. Let's be really clear. We are not born innocent and corrupted by this world. We are born condemned, spiritually lifeless, totally depraved. The only reason why children would be saved, and I believe by God's grace they are, certain age, there's an accountability brought in, is because of the sovereign grace of God that would set upon those sinners and save them from their sins. No one goes to heaven because they are righteous. Not one. We only go to be with the Lord on the basis of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And I happen to believe that God can save people as He pleases. I save you. I save you. I save you. The children, aborted babies, save you. Save you. Praise God. In Jesus Christ, righteous and justified. Now what about universalism? Oh, the, the, many, the many poor interpretations that flow from this passage. I just have to address this one. I had a, a pastor declare... One time, uh, we're all good. Oh man, I wish I could say that. I wish I could just stand up here and say, listen, everybody you know, good to go. Don't worry. We're all good. That's not what the Bible says. It's not what the Bible says. So how do we put together, when we read a sentence like this, how do we understand what is being said from what is not, clearly not being said? Let me show you. 
For as by the one man's disobedience, the many, who is that? Well, that's everybody but Jesus, right? He could have said all there just as easily. The many, that is all humanity, but Jesus Christ. We're made sinners. So by the one man, capital M, Jesus, by his obedience, the many, it's the exact same phrase, the many will be made righteous. Or if you go to 1 Corinthians 15, 22, for as in Adam, all, all of humanity die. So also in Christ shall all, same word, be made alive. And so people are like, sweet, no need to evangelize. No need to worry about getting the gospel to the ends of the earth. No, no worry for missions or, or really, we're just good to go. That is not what Paul is saying. We've got to understand the all. Don't just assume the all that he just said means the exact same thing as the all that he said after it. All people, that is, across the world, collectively are dead. We, together in Adam, are all gone. Lifeless, dead. So also in Christ, all, that is, who believe. Clearly, he's saying that. It's all who believe. In fact, I'll show you the verse in our immediate context in verse 17. He already said it this way. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift. The call is not just, we're all good. The call is, throughout all of what Paul writes, receive the gift. Trust Christ. Repent of sin. Run to Him. And you will be saved. We don't believe that everybody's just good to go. So read with an eye to all of Scripture, even when you see two alls. They don't necessarily mean the exact same thing. This is one of the most important things to learn as a Christian as you study your Bible. Be careful with the alls and interpret them in, in view of all of Scripture. Because it is consistent. Now, let's keep going. Verses 20 and 21. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, as I already said earlier. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace. Let me just say what grace is again, just so we're clear. Unmerited favor. It's undeserved. Favor. Grace might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That is what we can say in the face of death. We have something far more powerful, exceedingly surpassing our great enemy, sin, Satan, death, and the consequence of hell. We have the gospel of Jesus Christ. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Oh, friends, if we don't see this, we're never going to ask the question in Romans 6.1. By the way, I'm not skipping uh, over to a, a minor prophet. I'm just going to keep charging through Romans. So next week, we're going to start in on Romans 6-8 through 8 because the, ha the handoff here is so connected. I just couldn't separate it. We will never say, well, shall we sin so that grace may abound if we don't understand where sin increases, grace abounds all the more. You see the connection between the two? It is true that even in the face of our sin, God's grace is greater. 
it abounds all the more. Grace wins every time. Every time. Well, Paul, should we sin it up then? Grace may abound. Should we, should we sin it up so he'll look good? May it never be. We'll get to that next week. This is really good news, friends. For those of us who were born as enemies of God, rebels and sinners and, and, and selfish and exalters of ourselves, worshipers and idolaters of us, it's good news because, friends, we have hope. That's his point. We can have a hope, an invincible hope. Even in our lives when there is sin, guess what? Grace is greater. The grace of Christ overwhelms that sin. God's grace in Jesus Christ is greater than all my sin. Do you believe that, Christian? Do you believe that? That is not a license to sin. But the truth is so real that it should lead us to, to worry about that, right? Well, was that a license to sin? No. But almost. It's that amazing. You cannot outsin God's grace. And no one who's saved is going to want to. No true saved Christian who understands the cost of that grace is going to want to continue in sin. God's grace in Jesus Christ is greater than all my sin. We sing, uh, grace is enough. Or in Ugandan, echisacho chimala. Right? Love that. When we were down there and we learned that, we sang that with them. His grace is enough. Believer, this week, His grace is it's not just enough. It's more than enough to wash over all of your sins. When you experience condemnation, be reminded of His grace. Much more. It's much more than enough. Now, destroying the reign of death. Let's do this. You know what I mean? I'm sick of death staring at us. We'll call this the sledgehammer of grace. It's sort of ironic when you think about it. But I would close your eyes, guys, okay? I got glasses on, so we should be okay. Okay, now here's what, we're, here, here's what I'm thinking, okay? When, when death gets destroyed, what do God's people do? We celebrate. I'm thinking victory cry. Are you with me? Like, I'm thinking, like, victory cry? Can we do that? All right. William's in. Okay, so get ready now, okay? When you see death crumble, we should be able to shout the victory of God's grace in Jesus Christ. All right. On three. One. Two. Three. That's what I'm talking about. That's your headstone. That's your headstone. You don't have to fear that. What's there? Nothing. Death has nothing on you, Christian. There's no fear in life, and there's no fear in death. Jesus commands my destiny. And uh, 
Oh, look out. Come on. Death has been destroyed. Oh, what a gospel we have, friends. Our response this morning, I want to just keep this real short. It's real simple. Really, really simple. I have a question for you today. Are you in Adam still? Let me just put it that way. Still? Because you were born in Adam. Spiritually lifeless, dead, a slave of sin, hostile to God, blind to His glory. Are you in Adam? Or are you in Christ? Are you in Christ? Don't let another day go by living under the shadow and the reign of death. You can be free. Trust Jesus as your Savior today. Run to Him. Turn from your sin. Embrace His finished work. His free gift. It's free. And it's forever. Let's pray. Oh God, we give praise to You for the victory You have accomplished through Jesus Christ. Thank You for saving us from death and sin and Satan and Your eternal wrath. Thank You for Jesus Christ who accomplished for us what we could never accomplish on our own. Oh Jesus, thank You for Your obedience in Your life A perfect obedience to the Father. You never sinned. You never transgressed His law, both from your heart or in your deeds or your words or what you did or did not do. You were perfect. And we praise You in Your perfection. Your glory is in Your moral perfection as it is in Your exaltation after You became the victor over death and sin and Satan and hell. We delight in the life that we have in You. We reign, O Jesus. We reign with You in this victory today, even as we walk in this dark world. Oh, thank You for Your church. A city on a hill. A light. Not hidden, no. But set up on a hill to shine and point the way. Lord, use us as we walk in Your light this week. And I pray that that all here today would be found in Christ. It's in His name I pray. In the name of Jesus, the victor. Amen.